My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. Six AM in Australia. For me, this is a really great opportunity to try out a dual interview where I'm normally interviewing somebody or you're normally interviewing somebody on yours. And we might just introduce ourselves and the name of our podcast. Um, one, this sense making in a changing world show. And it's called Kylak or Kylak. I think we're a pair of beginner Kylaks. And that's something that I connected with with you, Morag, when I met you in Scotland. I mean, I know for myself, I find the wisdom in these kinds of conversations. It's when we come together that something else happens. I actually never really know what's going to come out of the conversation, which makes it really exciting. It's the continual asking of the questions. Where was our point of connection that started this conversation? Because whenever I think of you, I start to giggle. When we met, we met at Fintorn at a climate change and consciousness conference, and we'd both taken our children as uh, as youth members of this event as well. And we were part of a kind of like a home group. And <laughs> whenever we get together, we would just start to chat and giggle. I kind of, there was a sort of a playfulness and an openness about you and uh, and that deep querying about what was going on that just was, I don't know, I just got attracted to your energy of somehow. And every time I think of you, I just feel happy. I really trust those moments of connection because there were a lot of magical things about that because Findhorn were reaching out for Irish kids and there was somebody that knew about the Sudbury School and there was also a random funder that said, I want specifically to fund Irish youth to come. And so the school rang me and said, so um, would you be up for Finn going to Scotland? Said, um, he's already going to Scotland. <laughs> um, I'm, I've a ticket booked <clears throat> on a ferry. And they're like, well, it's to this conference. And I said, is it in Fintorn? <laughs> so Finn actually came completely independently of me where wow. I had booked my own self and then he basically ended up booked and going. Yeah, my eldest was the one who came into the conference with me. I think at the time she must have been 12. It was uh, a turning point for her, meeting meeting your son and all the friends in that group and just feeling the power of the youth voice and seeing what was possible and having seeing that there's a different perspective that you can have and holding that space and being in that youth Forum, so you know. Since then, she's she's ended up um, quitting school, going back to homeschooling. She's set up things like perma youth. She's just stepped into her space as being a leader, 
and it, it's phenomenal. It's absolutely, you know, it's a it's a point for her that I think she'll look at throughout her entire life as one of those key moments. There's something about both the way that I guess the the educational environment that you've created and surrounded your children in, and I guess maybe similarly here that created the possibility for what they saw there to land? You know, if you bring up your children to have a voice, then they're pretty articulate with that voice later on. (laughs) So, So I don't know. I mean, for me, I'd be really curious about that for you and and whether any of your experience of the the culture you were brought up in and the, the you know in our lifetime this deepening of the divide and the kind of post like late stage capitalism and post colonial legacies of damage and great degradation of land and people and and I'd be curious whether that you were conscious of resisting it or you know, providing an alternative for, for in your life and in your children and what happened for you. Like, I don't know where it, where it begins for you. You know, I was also a protester in my teens going out, you know, whatever was particularly around um, protecting forests. There were, there were peace rallies. There was a whole lot of different things happening at the time, you know, uranium mining. Um, so I was constantly on the streets. I did get a bit burned out by that. I felt... I got to the point of thinking, no one's even listening. No one even really cares about this. You know, there's a few of us who just keep on pushing and resisting, but it's not it's not being heard. And so I retreated for a year. I just went into a little bubble. I was I just felt deeply hurt by society in so many ways and had to take that all in. You know, like I didn't get brought up in an eco-village or a permaculture community, but I got brought up I was brought up in a suburb in Melbourne. Mum and dad were public servants, so we weren't rich, but we weren't poor either. We had enough to eat. We always had, you know, clean clothes on our back and off to school. It was a very standard kind of upbringing. But yet within that, there was a resistance that I felt coming through with with my parents. Like they, they built their house with their own hands. They designed it to be, you know, oriented to collect the sun and the thermal heat and they had natural foods and they filled the backyard and the front yard with native plants which would attract the birds and whereas everyone else had the lawns and it was different, you know, like the house didn't face the street, which was what you meant to do. It faced the sun. The garden was not neat. It was wilderness and tucked in amongst that were fruit trees and pots of herbs and and, you know, they brought us up as vegetarians. And so, you know, if you go out somewhere back then, there weren't vegetarian meals. They're just going to go, oh, you're vegetarian, scrape off the meat and give you the peas and carrots, you know. So it's sit there. So we didn't go out very much to sort of events. We were, it was a very kind of quiet upbringing. And I, but there was, it felt like there was a resistance in, in that. There was something about caring for what was happening, particularly my mum what was going on in the planet, uh, you know, with with wildlife. And my dad particularly was had a focus on ethics and being socially just. And and that was all. And he talked about perma. He introduced me to permaculture thinking and, and ideas. And so, yeah, as an activist, in 
it was sort of a natural fit. It was like, well, you are always talking about, you know, not harming anything. And so I just naturally went into this activism mode. But when I got burnt by it and society and came back to things, I thought, well, what do, what do I do? With, what do I do with this? Where do I go? And I had really no interest. I remember being, I was studying landscape architecture at the time. And I remember actually thinking, well, I don't actually really care about what they're teaching us here. They're teaching us how to become a designer for landscapes for the rich and, you know, anyone who has money for us to, we have this suburb in Melbourne called Turak, which was kind of like, well, everyone was aspiring to be a landscape architect for Turak houses. And I just saw this absolute pointlessness in spending all your life just to, to do that. So I started exploring ways of weaving permaculture in with that, the landscape architecture and um, think about design with nature. And, and I remember being told at university, um, design with nature, that's passe. And, um, you know, we need to be focusing on these, you know, contemporary methods of design. I just, I just felt like punched in the stomach by that. And I, I quit. I had like, I think one term left to go. I didn't want to be part of that system. And I left and I went off to Schumacher College and studied with, with Fritjof Capra and Vandana Shiva and Satish Kumar and just tried to sort of explore different ideas. Like where was where do I come from as well? Like where do I belong? So I started travelling and travelling into Scotland and, and across to Ireland because that's where 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 my roots are and but I knew nothing of it you know when you when you grow up in Australia you you you're in this place you have this sense of that it's not your place you know that but you don't have a another place that is your own either like we even though you feel part of the colonizer group you're also migrants and in some ways from ancestors also refugees and I know I can't possibly even begin to relate to, to the current existence of, of ref- refugees, but there's this sense of displacement that's in that. And just back on that resistance idea that I, I did feel a shift too when my children were born, that there, there are so many different ways to be strong. I guess what I've tried to do with, with, what, with my life is to be in a place where I can live and be fully present in what it is that I feel are the most important values to me and that there's an integrity about that. And so that when I speak or when I teach, that it's it's from that place. It's not something that I'm going, well, we should be doing this or we should be doing that or you should change or, you know, it's all that kind of the abouting about it. It's like, well, let's just be it and see what happens and then share from that place. And that's kind of the resistance model is just being being it and raising children in a way that is helping them to see past the corporate gloss. I was having a really interesting conversation about Minecraft with my son the other day. We'd avoided having computer game type of stuff in our house for a very long time and he discovered it and he loves it. And we, you know, I've had to kind of really open up my whole thinking about what that means. And we started to talk about all the the inherent bias and values that are in games. He's critical of what he sees 
around him. I said, you know, what about that? You're like you're chopping this monoculture crop of of um, sugarcane or something. I said, like, what if you got more points on a game like that for adding diversity? Like the more diverse crops you had in your Minecraft farm, the more points you would get and that you start to inherently shift the way that people think and the values they're getting. My resistance comes in many forms. <laughs> you know, still have the same kind of conversations and open up the dialogue with them through the lens that they're currently in. And Oh, gosh, it's hard. Yeah, so the resistance is, an, is in the everyday conversations that you have wherever you are. I think for me the thing that you don't see the privilege that you have until you, you sort of faced, it's just inherent in everything, isn't it? And what I found so useful is to, to just open up conversations. So I've just faced my uncertainty, the questions that I have, and not go, oh, well, I don't know, I, I'll just kind of continue on. It's like I actually really don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. This is new for me, and I know that I don't see a whole lot of stuff and just be in that, that open space. And so I spent a bit of time with an Indigenous elder. Um, he lives... He's not actually from this land. He's um, from the Gambangi land, which is just south of here, but he spends a lot of time in this area and he's he's always up for a chat. I often see him in town and I just sit down. And, and I, so we went down to a little um, park next to the neighbourhood centre that he'd been involved in uh, um, setting up with, you know, bush foods. And as we're walking down there, he's picking off all these berries. He said, oh, you know, each one of these berries has a different flavour. Can you check them out as we're going along? Like we're having this sort of bush tucker feast as we're going along. We get down, we sit down in this little yarning circle that that he created there. Um, and and I started asking him about this question about, or, you know, where I fit and where I'm, where I'm from, you know, like or how, what voice I have. And you know, one of the things that just struck me so much about this whole conversation, because I said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I have ancestors in, you know, in Ireland and Scotland and I know my mum was from England. She came from England, but her ancestors were from, from Wales. And so, like, there's all this kind of history there. But I was born in Melbourne and, you know, I kind of feel like I'm part of the problem. And, and he says, well, you know, well, where exactly in Melbourne were you born? Where where are you from? And uh, and so we started talking that you know I'm from near the Mullum River, and and my land is the is from the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and and I always felt like well that's not my right to ever say that I'm from that land because I I'm not. But he said, but he actually said no, you are. You were born there. That is your land, and you are. You have. You don't have the dreaming, but you have. You have the responsibility to connect with that land and and to to be with that land and care for that land and to be a steward with us of that land, and and it just transformed how I thought. Rather than being sort of someone who's kind of a part of the colonizers, part of the problem, we always get stuck in this. And this, I think, one of the things that makes us so stuck here in Australia is the guilt. You know, and and a lot of people don't want to face it. But then if you get caught in the guilt, then you become stuck as well. And so finding a way to, to land. So it's being in conversation. Um, I'm 
have the great the great honour to have an enormous amount of um, women elders around me at the moment who who we I can talk I can just ask them questions and they just tell me if I'm I'm being an idiot or not or you know and and just being straight up so part of this I think the the process of decolonization is is to be in the conversation to be open to change your script to be open yeah. to to not have a script at all because we don't we don't have one for this so one of the one of the things that that happens um, within the courses that I run is to that any anyone who wants to join from indigenous community um, is welcome to and we we join in as part of a like a conversation as a and uh, actually one one woman um, just joined the other day she's uh, she has a background in nutrition and she's exploring um, indi- um, her indigenous foods from that perspective. And she did a permaculture course a little while ago, actually, gave her kind of a platform and a voice for also sharing that. And so we're, we're going to start working together. She's come into this course to revisit that. She went off then on a tangent. She went into university. She started doing a PhD and just went, oh, hang on a tick, wrong direction, right topic but wrong direction. So she's coming back in to really just immerse herself in permaculture in a way that will see how we can have this dialogue so that how she revisits her knowledge of place at the same time as permaculture being informed by how she sees the the principles and the ethics and the way of describing permaculture. And I think the thing is that for me there's there's like multiple descriptions of permaculture anyway. So, you know, I'm also working at the same time with um, refugees throughout East Africa and they're describing permaculture as something which fits within their worldview. But so, so there's a whole group of women that I'm working with in, in Australia at the moment who are, who are exploring their indigeneity. Like they might have been brought up with part of that knowledge but not all of it and feel kind of lost as well between worlds and that permaculture they're finding is actually a a way that's kind of like a bridge, the scientific world or the Western world, but is deeply rooted and resonates with them. It speaks to them. Like so many conversations that I've had that it's been an entire, entirely embracing of it, but re-describing it in language that makes sense. Um, and another woman, for example, down in um, a bit further south from me, um, and Gambungu woman again, and she that's sort of the Coffs Harbour, south of Byron Bay area there, um, sort of uh, ocean people, and um, she's exploring the the seasonal calendars of of plants and the stories of plants and and the dreaming of plants and. And then how do you start to then create Indigenous food gardens that can be shared? So rather than, you know, because we, you know, people still want to grow, you know, carrots and cabbages and food from places that are, it, it doesn't belong. So there's a, there's a big shift to that. But at the same time, I also have other conversations with elders from other places, like an uh, amazing woman called Lilla Watson who's grown up in an incredibly 
um, strong vocal Indigenous family that have been resisting for a really long time. And and she said, well, you know, there's some key there's some key issues here. One is around access to land. Like yeah. Very few Indigenous people have access to land to even begin to regenerate the type of food system that we want. Another one is that, you know, once the foods get discovered, if it does go into a corporate thing, so like Kakadu Plum, for example, Kakadu Plum has been identified as having one of the highest vitamin Cs, but if, if, the, if the Kakadu Plum is grown in the forest, in the forest community, then it has the connectedness to all the other species. It's grown, it's grown in a community. If you take it out of its community, plonk it over here, it will not have the same qualities. It won't have the same healing qualities. It's, it's extracted from its context, and context is everything. So, the, so they're saying, one, it's, it's, it's destroying what it is by separating it. And secondly, what it's doing is it's, it's then taking our knowledge, corporatizing it, and putting it in a way that we don't ever get any, any value back from that. It's just an extraction of knowledge. So there are all these dimensions of it. That's not permaculture. That's agriculture just about to head up in a couple of weeks to the northern part of Australia, up near Cairns in the rainforest, coming together to explore how they're going to move forward. Because, and they've said, we've got land up here, and it was an old banana plantation, which was huge amounts of chemicals, the land was degraded, it was cleared of the rainforest. We need to work out how to regenerate it and how to find a way to access, they've been taken off country. You know, most people have been shifted to places so that the country they're from and the stories they have and the knowledge that's in, embedded in all of that has just been all mixed up. When you come to a place and you land in a place and you get given a piece of land, it's not necessarily the land that you're from. This is one particular community, Jumban community, which is one of the groups up there that have um, access to uh, quite a significant piece of land that back in the 1970s, I think, was bought for them by the government and then they managed to get a few other bits and pieces and have this so so now the the big a big hurricane came through a little while ago and knocked out all the banana plantations which were chemical banana plantations they weren't growing traditionally and that was kind of the main source of income it was a really good income for them for a while that got taken out um, they didn't have any resources to be able to rebuild it and now they're going well, actually, we don't want to rebuild that. We've had a pause. We realise now we actually want to do something completely differently. Um, how do we do that? We want to integrate with that, you know, our, our bush food knowledge and bring back our stories and sit sit together with people who have an understanding of how to think in a in a way to regenerate land and just see where we go, where where we get to. Having a circle up there in the next few weeks to to talk about that. Who knows what's going to come of it? The kind of the idea is that it's it's integrating eco village. It's with the global eco village network, looking at what are the ways of regenerating economy, thinking about housing, water, wastewater, food systems, because they have so they really have so little up there and very little access resources to do yeah. it. My world, even though I live in an eco village, my world is more in in that of of permaculture and and permaculture service work wherever that might be, whether it be with youth, with Indigenous communities and with with um, refugees. So that's kind of my main area of work. What I find really interesting about 
this particular direction that Genoa is taking, which is the Oceania region, is that they're mostly working with um, a, a lot of Indigenous groups, you know, whether you're talking about Koreans or, you know, various countries through Southeast Asia to Indigenous communities here, there is, you know, that that is a big focus. It is about um, decolonising the concept of an eco-village and reframing what an eco-village means because that is what, uh, you know, like what is one planet living? What is what is living in a way that is is nourishing the planet, rebuilding traditional cultures, all of those things at the same time. Going into a community like that, it's not it's not going in saying, okay, we've got an answer for you and here's the eco-village design cards and this is what you do. And, you know, it's the same with permaculture. Like you go and you open up conversations to explore what this means and how that relates to that. And somewhere there's you find that point of connection and then once you find those points of connection, then you start to explore other things and then they'll say, oh, well, you know, actually that bit there looks like it would be really helpful for us and we see how that relates to us. And then it's just kind of this, it's a weaving that happens. You know, some gets left off. Oh, well, that's irrelevant to us. We don't need that bit or we're going to re-describe it as that. And what I hear often, and I, can, I remember this even in Indonesia like 20-odd years ago working with um, communities there, they're saying, we really appreciate you bringing this because we'd been told you know, like in the 1970s when the Green Revolution just sweeped the islands of Indonesia, they were swept at gunpoint saying, give us all your old seeds, take these ones, use these chemicals, do this, you know, rip out those, you know, food for us and expand your crops into larger fields. And this whole transformation happened so violently and so rapidly in in those places that you know, some had kept little seeds aside or, you know, little corners of food forests in, you know, valleys somewhere. And then when you come and you share stories about seed saving and, and food forests and, you know, the whole all the stuff that's within permaculture, they said, that's it. It's not saying that this is permaculture and we own it. It's saying this is a pattern that people everywhere have can recognise and I think it's totally dependent on how you explain what permaculture is and how you open conversations about how we use When I speak, it's from a perspective of, and maybe this is where that kind of challenge becomes because it becomes like the dogma of permaculture is this and, and, you know, it gets bundled up as this thing and what someone does over there affects what everyone, the, the sensitivity and the real kind of, experience of having worked in for for decades doing that kind of work and when I hear people say that permaculture is just for white privileged folk or it's it doesn't it's not relevant to that culture it's just it goes over the top of that I just sit and think absolute like it's not my experience whatsoever where you know if if, you know, as the way that we've been describing permaculture, and maybe that is the a feminine approach to it, that it's not not needing to know things, but needing, you know, coming from the perspective of opening a conversation to explore the like how how do you, what does that mean for you? How do we describe how do we make sense of this together? Like we are all here as humans, as people deeply concerned about the state of the world, about our deeply concerned about our families and about nutrition and about the forest and about the quality of the food and and 
you know, caring. I mean, you know, essentially the basis of it all for me is about the quality of care, you know, and, and, uh, so that does sound like you're caring for each other, you know, caring for our children, caring for like, that's, that's the one it's the only, it's the ultimate resistance really, isn't it? It's the mm-hmm. only thing you get left with mm-hmm. is, well, I'm going to keep on caring, even though. How deeply can, can you care? Yeah. Yeah. Even though it kind of is very like the burnout you described at the beginning of the activism, even mm-hmm. though that caring is pretty painful if you continue to do it all the time. But there's you a know. different type of caring, isn't there? Like there was, like I cared, like I, I felt so deeply inside as a teenager that I, mm-hmm. you know, I cared about what was happening. That I, I, but I went out and I fought. It's that that kind of is the exhausting bit. But when the resistance is more about, it's a generative approach, isn't it? It's a generative approach of creating a new, a new field or new connections, and and through the caring, exploring the richness of the relationships and reaching out. And like I remember being part of starting up Northy Street City Farm and. Some people would come down, we'd get the garden started, but there'd be, I noticed these women who who didn't come in, they would sort of be around the edge. And I think, you know, that like there was this Taiwanese woman I went and, and I, you know, I, I was the kind of person who'd float around in the farm. I don't know if I did terribly much work sometimes because I was always just talking to people. And I'd go over and I'd chat to her and I'd say, oh, you know, what are you harvesting there? Because she was busy in the tree and she said, oh, well, this is this is a tamarind tree. It was like a street tree. She discovered these row of street trees of tamarinds that had been planted by the council like decades ago. She said, and this is what we do with them. And then another guy came through another time from Timor and said, well, the tamarind tree, did you know that actually this, the leaves of this tree were what kept us alive during the famine? I was like, no, I didn't know that. It's like all of a sudden I'm looking at these massive trees transforming my perception of what it is that. And so it's through this conversation all the time and the richness and and, you know, what I realised was, like, it's it, when you slow down enough to notice what's going on around you and to care to to reach out like that, that lady could have just kind of gone past. But when you do notice what that and you reach out and you, you know, and you invite them to to be part of what's happening or to open a conversation, something happens to you and she said, oh, no, I, I, I don't. I don't think I'd really like to come in. I, I don't feel comfortable, but I'm 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 really happy to share with you what I do with all these plants. If you'd like me to show you, I'd be. And then so she did that. And then before you knew it, she was coming in and talking to everyone. It was just like, how do you find those points of connection? Then weave new stories together and like the core part of permaculture. I mean, it comes through in the ethics, but then when you come back to it, like it is essentially deeply about care. And reaching out, but also self-care. Like that's kind of one that I possibly don't do quite as well as, you know, <laughs> you know I've chosen to live in this environment where I have, you know, like I purposely, you know, set this direction when I was really young to to live in this, in this eco-village surrounded by permaculture. And like it took a long time, you know, like, you know, little bit by little bit planting, a cutting here, a stick of timber here, like just... We didn't go into debt. We just, when we got a little bit more of stuff, we would just gradually make it. And uh, and so we're surrounded now by, yeah, the forest on one side, the gardens down there. We collect our water, you know, and it, I feel nourished by the environment and the community, you know, like the community is, I've lived here now for 21 years, so I'm still kind of a newbie, but we're all kind of new in this eco-village, just not much older than that. 
Well, something, um, I just interviewed a, a guy from um, Limestone Permaculture here in Australia and he talked about how we moved, he was, he was living that life. He was, um, you know, in this in the city, and he he was a builder, and he was working endless hours. And he ended up going and buying a little one acre plot of land. And now his entire income is from this one acre land. And he says he has eleven streams of income, and one of the ones that he says that is really big and he really values the most is the gift economy. And he says, you know, people come up to me, they've got, you know, surplus fish or oysters or, or you know, venison, all these things. He says, I couldn't possibly begin to think about how I'd be able to afford to eat as well as I do if it wasn't the fact that I had all this abundance to share from, from my one-acre farm and that the gift, and I think valuing the gift economy is something that happens when you enter into this into this space of this way of living. And I was just thinking, I was just speaking to that I was feeling sad that Australia doesn't have the kind of village way of life that traditional, like, long time scale communities have, you know that you you know uh, here we kind of just kind of came in and built cities and suburbs random houses on hills and farms there's not there's not the village and the little web of local villages and so i think this is where the eco village concept becomes an important transition thinking like obviously it's not something that everyone's going to go and live in an eco village but it's really about trying to demonstrate the the scale of living in a village and what that's like and when people come here there's a there's a there's a sense of something of different happening the, mm-hmm. and there's a, it almost feels like they're noticing what you might notice if you were living in a village, like people knew each other. There's the local baker, there's the little local cafe and there's the clothes exchange thing and there was all these noticings that people have about what it's like and I even have groups of school kids, I get them coming up here on camp from the city and I was at the end of one session, it's always stuck with me because they we go around the circle at the end and, you know, and um, one of the things that they said was, oh, it's so amazing just like an hour or so away from this major city where we're from, it's this whole other civilization. <laughs> wow. It's like, it's not that different, but it's different enough to notice that there's something, there's some other something thing going on here and to experience that. Um, and I think that's the value of, of an eco, you know, the eco village here is to have, have a different place that has different values and, you know, it, it's recognisable. But it's different. I, and I really believe too about um, the need to to open to youth in permaculture in a way that makes sense to them. And so I'm really excited with, with Maya and, and the perma youth that, that's emerging now is that it's it's not like, okay, well, we're going to run a program for youth and come on, come on, youth, come and do this program. It's, 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 some, it's different. They're, they're, there's... They're starting to find each other and each other through music, through art, through writing, through storytelling, through sharing their love of different passions that they've got that they're exploring. And some of the things that's happening is remarkable. For example, because the connection of our work goes around the world, so they have, you know, people who come to their Zoom gatherings because of COVID, they can't have people from refugee settlements, from Bangladesh, from Sweden, from Australia, from all over coming together from, you know, Southeast Asia. And there's also America's hub. And uh, these 
they always have free events, but then they raise money during those just from people donating. They might ask their parents or do a local raffle. They gather that money and then they send that money to help um, offer free permaculture education in a refugee settlement. And so when they, so there's a local teacher over there that we give the money to and she gathers people and they, they run their local programs. And some young lads came through that program and said, this is it. This is and I've spoken to him just about every day since then. And he says, you know, I was a street kid before this. I really didn't have any purpose. I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. You know, there's so much depression and violence and anxiety, drug use, sex offence, suicides. He says, I discovered through this perma youth something that really made sense to me and gave me a chance to be self-reliant and with my community that we can actually address the growing hunger that we're experiencing ever since COVID, we've lost access to um, food support. So they don't actually get food sent in anymore. They just get $7 a month. They don't have enough to eat. They, they're they struggling. And then as soon as they struggle, then all these other differences between the different people from different nations come in. So he said, this is a way that I can go. I can help the widows in my community. I can help the young orphans. And all of a sudden, I feel like I am somebody and I have something to contribute. Mm-hmm. I want to share this with everyone in the camp. I can't do it fast enough. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing it and I'm going to get together with other young people who are interested in music and we're going to sing these songs. And and uh, so he's now started every time they have a Permuth Festival, he brings in another song and uh, and they're and uh, and it's in some some of it's in English, some of it's in their language, and they have subtitles. He he does it all on his little phone he's got, and he f- does music videos. Anyway, so we started to share these videos out. Anyway, the, the Grateful Dead Foundation have got onto this and said this is amazing. And he young Somali wanted to have a studio where he could invite young people to come and have a voice to be able to you know be heard and to have something positive to do. So the Grateful Dead have said they're going to fund the building of this this music video studio. And then normally the Grateful Dead say one project, that's it, we're done. And and then they said, this is such an amazing project. We would like to support the building of youth music studios in every camp. And so this is just emerging now. We're just from this little group of kids want to do things that we care about that matter to us. Mm -hmm. They're starting to change their worlds and therefore transform other people's worlds by whoever they touch. And so, you know, I think the skills of permaculture, like when I look at what they're doing in in Kakama Refugee Settlement, in Rwanda Refugee Settlement, they're saying that these skills are what we need to be able to know that we, we, whatever happens, we'll be okay. And I kind of feel like that's what a lot of young people need wherever they are. That that sense of, it's it's a deep sense of security. A lot of kids who are coming through standard school systems have that like if they don't get a job if they don't get the right mark if they don't get the right university course if they don't get the right job then they're incredibly insecure and so redefining what what security is I think is going to be something that so many of them need because we're you know in such uncertain times yeah yeah Mm. okay well thank you so much for joining me on on my podcast and it's a delight to join you on your podcast what a great way it's, to do it it's stacking functions isn't that uh, very permacultural <laughs> <laughs>